This is Healing Justice, conversations at the intersection of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Werning, and I'm so excited to be here with Taj James kicking off our collaborative series called Generation Transformation. Hey, Taj, how's it going? Doing well, Kate, how are you? I'm good. I am so pumped about this series. I was so excited when the team at NextGen reached out to me to do something on youth organizing and intergenerational organizing because that is where I spent really the first like seven years of my organizing life in the youth space versus a high school student and then as a youth organizer in Wisconsin. So we're so excited in this five-part series to really be bringing you on a journey mostly narrated by young people about what it is to organize intergenerationally. And so Taj is mostly going to be moving with you all on this journey, doing the interviews and practicing along with us during the practices. So Taj, will you tell the people who you are, what kind of work you come out of? I'm so excited that you're here with us. Well, it's a really an honor to be uh, accompanying you and joining the Healing Justice podcast community of which I'm a proud member. I remember when we were having some early conversations about your vision for this, and I was really excited because having been involved with the work of supporting transformational approaches to social change and organizing and movement building, it was clear that there were so many stories to be told and so much wisdom emerging out of our communities and so grateful that you've created a space for so much of that sharing and exchange to happen. So the Generation Transformation podcast series was developed as a partnership between the Next Gen Fund and the Healing Justice podcast to really lift up uh, a few of the voices and power and brilliance of of young leaders and organizations that are playing really key roles in building transformative movements for change. And the Next Gen Fund was a project that was started by um, the Ford Foundation and developed in partnership with the Movement Strategy Center as a response to the growing call from frontline organizers and leaders to really learn about the resources and the approaches to restorative and transformative organizing and to figure out how to really bring more resources to a rising generation of young social justice leaders who are nurturing sustainable and transformative approaches to power building. Yeah, and shout out to you and the crew at Movement Strategy Center, the podcast that you anchor called The Big We. So folks haven't heard the big we yet, go and check (laughs) Check that out. out. So you can add y'all to the very, very short list of movement folks who are wise to the power of connecting with people through podcasting so far. More folks are catching on and joining us. One of the things I know about you, Taj, you know, just having sort of a distant, mostly over social media relationship with you over the past couple years, is that I really see you personally in practice around upping young leadership. I think about my housemate and a real organizing partner, Alexandra Flores Quilty, who runs a yeah, work called By the People, by the working people. on impeachment. Um, I think about others of my friends that I see you really consistently up in public in a way that both makes me feel like you're highly aware of sort of like your vouching power, right? And like your positionality and movement space of a really well-earned credentialer. (laughs) Um, And that with that awareness of that power, you sort of extend yourself to redirect credit and attention and followership and belief and support towards many folks. and, And I see mostly including young folks who are taking enormous risks and trying really hard and putting themselves out there in movement leadership. And so would love to just hear from you personally, like, am I right that that's an explicit practice (laughs) that you're engaging in that you've clearly thought about, right? And like, what is your orientation and your personal stake in this generational conversation? Well, this could be a very long conversation, but it's pretty simple. I'm just, I'm just trying to do like Ella taught us, do like Lisa Sullivan taught me, do like Makani Temba taught me, uh, do like my mama taught me. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, I grew up in a moving family. I grew, you know, I started organizing when I was in high school around, you know, school desegregation issues essentially in my community and worked with young people growing up and, you know, came out of college and my first work was doing student organizing with the Black Student Leadership Network and organizing freedom schools and under the leadership of Lisa Sullivan, really trying to pick up the the Freedom School tradition of SNCC and invest in the transformative power that young people had. And if you know 
the history of the civil rights movement and the history of SNCC, you understand the role that Ella Baker played in, in terms of recognizing and investing in and supporting the power of young people. And so I was a part of a generation that was trying to sort of return to that tradition. And there were, you know, there were struggles and challenges in that, intergenerational struggles and challenges within our community about the role of young people and how we support and honor their voices. And, you know, as a young person in that work, there are moments where I've very much felt not necessarily supported always by the people who are coming before. And so always sort of held a commitment as I grow in this work and move forward in this work, we have a responsibility, I have a responsibility to make sure that we're not just supporting the people coming up after us, but creating space for their leadership. And what's so powerful about what the youth organizing movement has just reminded us is that, you know, young people are actually just human beings. <laughs> and and being a parent, you know, of two kids, I'm like, wow, you're here and you're already a human being from the start with like clarity and agency. And, you know, there's, we got to learn how to talk and walk and all that stuff. But we sort of live in a culture that really has a hard time recognizing the full humanity of young people. And, you know, recognizing that humanity and recognizing the power and responsibility that comes along with it is, is really important. And, you know, as a person who's got two teenage girls who are a part of my family and who I learn from every day and keep me clear about what my responsibilities are, and as someone who gets to support younger leaders in lots of different ways, you know, it's very clear to me that young people's leadership and young people's power today, not tomorrow, is essential to helping humanity get out of the mess we found ourselves in. And, and that's not just because, you know, young people are the future, but, but young people will actually understand the future better than I do because they're going to live further into it. And I think I found time and time again in supporting young leaders and in, in, in doing youth organizing in their high schools around the school to prison pipeline and working with, you know, folks around Occupy or Black Lives Matter or the Dreamers or, you know, young people right now who are going to try to get this criminal administration out of office that they bring insight and strategy and wisdom that we all need to pay attention to and we all need to invest in. And I think one of the things that's been challenging is trying to encourage some of my peers who are, you know, Generation X who are in leadership within institutions with some, you know, significant resources and influence to move is not seeing as many of my peers as I would hope really direct resources towards younger leaders and some of the movements that are coming up who are really doing work that none of us are in a position to do and frankly know how to do. Um, and we would be making progress a lot faster if we knew how to recognize and support that leadership. So that's an interesting aspect. And what we're learning more about it in terms of just the unique gifts that each generation brings from you know our experiences and, and what we hold. And each generation kind of has its own superpowers. And we've got to really learn to appreciate and respect what those are because we've got a sort of a collective challenge as a species <laughs> to, to build a new world out of the mess of the collapsing one. So young people are key to that. So I think the conversations in this series really demonstrate and illustrate what kind of transformative power young people are, are building, not just for themselves and their peers, but really cross-racially, intergenerationally, cross-class, cross all of the, all of the binaries and divisions, because that's really, really the thing that's most remarkable to me about the younger people I spend time with is they sort of have a, a much more inherent understanding of how everything is connected and whole. Like they're not trying to figure that out. They just sort of know it and they live into it in ways that are just really beautiful and powerful. And, and that's really the wisdom that we all need to be returning to. So that's a little bit of what inspires me to try to be the support I can be and the support that's needed to folks who are doing hard work that they're only in a position to do. Mm. Well, y'all, you can see why you're lucky to be following Taj through these conversations that are coming up in this series. And um, just to give folks an idea, next week, we'll be talking with Chinese Progressive Association and listening into their reflections on young leadership and intergenerational organizing. And then they'll be offering a practice with us. And then the following week, we'll be talking with Freedom Inc. Um, in my home state of Wisconsin, coming at you from Madison, and also offering a practice. And so that's what you can expect from this series. And today, we're really in an opening conversation, diving in deeper to some of the reflections you were just sharing, Taj, about the importance of youth leadership, about the importance of transformative approaches to organizing. And we're going to be dropping in with you, Ellie, Supriya, and Clarabelle. 
And so I'm wondering if you can just give us a quick orientation to who these incredible people are. Yes. So Clarabelle Vidal and Luna, who are a part of the democracy team at the Ford Foundation and who are really brilliant and amazing leaders in the philanthropic space with a deep commitment to power and organizing and a real understanding of the special role that young people play, were kind of the catalysts and initiators for the Next Gen Fund. And they're the ones that came to Supriya and I and Hanato and Carlos at Moon Strategy Center and to, to see if we could partner in making this fund happen. So, so you're going to hear from Clarabelle, who's really not only supporting this work, but working to bring other folks in philanthropy to also co-invest in the powerful work that young people are doing in communities. And for my sister, Supriya, who I met when she was running the Funders Collaborative on Youth Organizing. She's currently the, the head of the Hidden Leaf Fund and still a part of the, the Next Gen team. And Supriya is just one of those people who's been a champion and uh, a believer in and, a, and someone who supported young people's power building work for for decades and generations. And the amazing Helikuna, who <laughs> is just a force of nature and one of the most like dynamic and creative people I've had a chance to talk to. And yeah, it's a really rich conversation and I'm excited for everyone to, to jump in and learn more about these women and, their, and the work they're doing. Amazing. Okay, y'all, here's the conversation. Helikuna. Tell us a little bit about your story, your journey for how you became the person who was able to bring your community together in this way and sort of come back to ourselves. Yes, my story of self-liberation, how I reclaiming my humanity. Yeah, nobody has asked me that before. How are you reclaiming your humanity? Uh, just being here in this uh, society that reminds you every single day about that you may not belong or remind you every single day that this system is not made for you? Well, thank you for the question. Uh, <laughs> uh, this, uh, I think this reminds me a lot. Um, I have a good friend of mine. His name is Anpao Duta Flyner. So we love Duta, I call him Duta. He asked me a really simple question uh, he say, where are you from, from, from? And I was like, uh, well, I'm from Mexico. And say, no, where are you from, from, from? How was the relationship of your family with land, your culture? And I say, ah, oh. uh, well, uh, you know what? Colonization happened, I'm Mexican, that's for sure. That is what I can tell you, I'm Mexican. He said, no, no, but when you're going to move from decolonizing your life to start indigenizing it? And I say, well, I'm no, I'm no member of any tribe. I'm no indigenous. I'm like, no, for your home country. And that opening for me a whole what it was my journey, right? The, my journey of who I am, who are my ancestors, how I'm being a good ancestor for the upcoming and future generations. And they start the indigenization of who I am and why I do of what I do, right? So it was a reclaiming my whole humanity. My story is more than the fact that I crossed the border when I was 14 years old. The fact that I didn't qualify for DACA, even though that I fought really hard for it because I have two entries. The fact that when I didn't qualify for DACA, I go through another uh, immigration uh, proceeding that it was focusing abuse uh, in my life. And that was painful, right? So what I do with all this pain, all this violence, all this, this suffering inside me for the movement, you need to transform it. You cannot keep it inside you. You need to transform it. You need to beautify it. You need to indigenize it. And that was my process, right? And the process of, um, well, I'm a woman. I'm a daughter. I'm an auntie. Um, I'm an amazing, funny person. If you meet me or have a dinner with me, <laughs> I, I know how to sing sometimes. So it was more discovering the different layers. And that, that was happening at the same time a lot of youth was asking for. So it was 
it was a parameter at the same time. Uh, my leadership was the reflect and the mirror also or members. And the members were pushing my leadership to really go more deep of who I am. And, and at the same time, I, I made the conscious decision to do my work. Organizing models has been really, uh, it's a white unionized model, the, the classic organizing model. And that is really focused in a lot of drinking. And, and that's how it has been paternalistic, uh, also pass on, but that's not really how indigenous organizing is grounded or focused on. Uh, so I, I I also went through my own journey of sobering up uh, and I went to my own journey of how I use, what are the tools an organizer can use besides the other outlets that are really common and classic, right, for the organizer. The organizer can do one-on-ones and build relationship by doing art, by doing walks, by running, by swimming, by camping, by really embedding different behaviors of what have come to, right? Um, so that has been the process in my personal life. Uh, plus the own process as an immigrant woman of color coming out as a queer woman and going through the whole shaming, hurtful, journey of really being able to let it go and be able to to also shift our mentality of that the system wants us to victimize us but really empower ourselves in our sovereignty and self-determination with a collective uh, collective goal of healing to really reclaim the not just my humanity, but the humanity of all. So that's a little bit of how I just uh, got to to this deep journey. So I I strongly believe that the leaders who are doing the work and the leaders and the members and the organizers who are doing the work to embody and change change organizing in a more holistic way and bring healing to the models and their spaces, they are also in their own journey of grow and heal. And that's the beauty of it. Because at the end of the day, we are all synchronized and complementary for a collective healing. And that's what life is about. Uh, there's no one special guide or model that is telling you how to liberate yourself. No, there's no such a thing. But it's the whole journey of your own life and with the relationship with others and the relationship with your ancestors, with your present and the future that will really bring the complete cycle of healing and belonging. I'm 32 years old now. Uh, I was shame when I was 16 years old, uh, really heavily in my high school. 16 years has passed, and there is the same racist slurs, is the same tension. But I think is now is 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 scariest because of the time that we are living. But it's also remind you about the reality that we are living in this country, right? And the importance of cross-movement and the importance to really uh, educate, educate and share and like really build up the agency for the new generation to be speaking true to power and owning their stories uh, with a joyful rebellious all the time. Whew. Joyful rebellion all the time. Thank you for sharing a little bit of your journey. I'm so moved by the power of our brothers and sisters to help us ask the deeper question, this deeper question of who are you? No, no, who are you really? No, no, who are you really? And um, the most profound practice can be 
the friend willing to ask that deep question. Our colleagues at the Movement Strategy Center have been in community with folks who've been asking the question over the last five or six years about how we transition from a world organized around violence and domination and extraction to a world organized around resilience, regeneration and interdependence or a world organized around love, care and community. And so, so ha- having a friend or a community with which you can ask the deep question and, and ask it multiple times is so valuable. So Supriya and Clarabelle, can you talk a little bit about um, what you've learned in this process of having hundreds and hundreds of groups, some of which we knew, some of which we didn't know, apply to be a part of this process and share powerfully about the work they're doing? And can you share a little bit about some of the models and examples and innovations that uh, you learned about and were excited about, both from the groups that got supported through the fund and then also just ones that applied? Because as we discussed, there were hundreds of groups we were excited to, to figure out a way to support. My name is Supriya. And Taj, actually, I have to throw it right back at you as someone who has been a true partner in this work with me for more than a decade now, a mentor, a guide. There are so many ways in which we together and with others have thought about how to bring more attention to the power of young people and organizing the dream movement has been one of the most inspiring of our times. Black Lives Matter, the work around gun violence, the criminal justice reform, all of that really led by young people. And the model of organizing when we were younger was really one in which you were taught the fight and taught to compartmentalize and taught to dig in And the shift has been that young people have not only said, nope, we're not going to do that because that doesn't work for us, but they've evolved the model to say that in order for us to truly achieve the world we seek, in order for us to move to a model of abundance, healing is integral. And one thing that I want to just add that we've learned in this process of resourcing next gen and the conversations we've had with hundreds of folks around the country is that some of those pieces of healing and resilience have been inherent to to organizing models already. They just haven't been given the space or time or resources to shine. And in other cases, we have young people really forcing an innovation around healing and resilience that are bringing new models to bear, new ways of approaching how we deal with our traumas, how we can truly envision a world of abundance with partners we'd never think we'd be at the same table with. So we have like sort of indigenous practices and then we have new practices. So these are some of the kind of headlines, really broad bird's eye view. I think young people are just making different demands. And as a result, we do have a much more viable long-term pipeline for organizing in this country that probably 10 years ago, we were scratching our heads saying, and how is this gonna, where is this gonna go? So I'm Clarabel Vidal, Program Associate for the Civic Engagement and Government Team at Ford. And I think for us, if we're gonna talk about the process, we have to talk a bit about the impetus for like why Ford decided to embark on this under, our senior program officer, Luna Yasui's leadership. And the start of that story is important because it grounded the principles for why we decided to do this work and how we decided to do this work. Um, And for those that don't know, at Ford on their civic engagement and government program team, one of our strategies is to support um, youth organizing and leadership development. And what we noticed, and Ellie is on the line, so she can also talk to this too, Post-2016, as our country um, witnessed an increase of hate crimes that we're also still experiencing a few years after that election, an increase in hate crimes targeting communities of color, LGBTQ communities as well. And what we noticed was a number of our grantees 
asking us for resources to support their staff and their members beyond the typical like technical assistance and like capacity building that we trainings that we would support and it was everything ranging from we want to be able to provide our members and our staff with access to therapists and counselors on site. We want to also provide them with resources to deal with stress. And what we learned is through the process is that this work was being done, but it was being done under-resourced and no one was really talking about it. Um, but I think at, at a moment of crisis, folks were like, no, we need to ask for what we need. And that allowed us to really think about well, we want to be responsive to the field and we want this work to then be informed by the field and we want to allow it to have some experimentation, which is how this whole thing kind of came about, working with the Movement Strategy Center and Sopria and thinking about how can we do this in a way that doesn't perpetuate some of the same dynamics that philanthropy already does and realizing the hypocrisy that if we were going to fund healing practices and wellness practices that we could not perpetuate some of those white supremacy dynamics and so really kudos to the next gen team and the movement strategy team for pushing us on thinking about what does it look like beyond a paper application to go forward and actually interview. Um, I, I think you guys interviewed about like a hundred groups and then not just interview the groups, but then also cover an honorarium for their time. And I'll be the first to say that when you all brought that idea to us, we were like, wait, 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 do we have money in the budget to do that? And it was really like your leadership that said, we've already ran the numbers. This is doable. We can do this. And this is the right thing to do. And as a funder to sit back and say, yes, we trust you guys. And we trust that this is the right way to do it, I think was part of the process for us in the learning as well. And it just speaks volume to the relationship that we're building with the 21 groups and the conversations that I have with other funders usually is about two things one is the process and they're like wait you guys were able to do that and we're like yes and let me tell you more about it but then the second piece is also then thinking about what does answering the question about what does it look like to holistically support youth leadership right beyond just the typical trainings that we've done if these are people and we say that we value um, supporting people of color and youth-led work that from communities that are at the forefront of this work then those are the communities that need the holistic support right because we are asking them to re-traumatize themselves every time they go out there to fight so for us it's been a really huge um journey and it's it i think back to going back to those core principles for us has been really important and to have you all keep us accountable to that and to push us beyond our own like thinking and limitations has been really helpful Hey everybody, it's Kate. I'm the founder of this podcast and I wanted to drop in just to give you a welcome if you're new to the show or a re-welcome if you're already part of our community. So our mission here is to be a gathering place and a resource for organizers, healers, cultural workers to skill build and deepen in political education, care for our mental and spiritual health, exercise big imagination and bold strategy to grow our leadership, and to strengthen our lifelong commitments to liberation work. We share access to powerful conversations about transforming ourselves and the world just like this one, and corresponding practices to help you and your people put transformative change into action. We are not just about listening in or passively cheering on these conversations, but actually sharing the tools across our communities about what it takes to change the way that we are moving in the world and the way that we're working to create change. We are now nearing 900,000 downloads of the podcast just 
almost two years in, which is wild. And we are so grateful to you, our listeners, who are incredible organizers, cultural workers, healers, activists, artists, teachers, social workers, so many of y'all who are joining us in reflection and practice every single week. To get more connected to us in a ton of different ways, you can go to healingjustice.org. You're going to find our social media and our email list on the community tab. You can learn about Book Club, where if you're listening to this right when it comes out on October 24th, we are diving into our live discussion with the authors of Turn This World Inside Out, The Emergence of Nurturance Culture. So check out Book Club and join us there. You can read about our accessibility commitments and access transcripts for every single episode. And you can also fill out the contact form to inquire about sponsorship, to support this show and to spread your message, or to get in touch with us about feedback, requests, questions, partnership, basically anything you can think of. You can find us at healingjustice.org contact. Finally, if you want to support the show, with as little as a couple dollars a month, you can go to patreon.com slash healing justice. I'm so grateful that Ellie and Taj, Supriya and Gladibel are sharing this gorgeous conversation with us. So let's dive right back in. I think when we started this process too, I have to call out two folks that aren't on this podcast, Genaro Rendon Lopez and Carlos Gaunischmieder, who played a critical and important part to the design, along with um, Rachel from Movement Strategy Center and Taj. When we entered into this, we were invited as a part of MSC, as the MSC family, invited into the conversations with Ford. And, you know, it could have been very transactional. But actually what we discovered was that in working with this team, and everybody having various levels of relationship, but mostly everybody having an orientation towards truly believing in young people and organizing and not just in some Pollyanna way, but truly like we know what we're about. We could move at a much faster speed around trust. And Carlos and Hinato having a long history in organizing also allowed for different kinds of conversations with folks. Sometimes we'd get on the phone and people say, oh, this is who's doing it. All right, now we're going to let our hair down. Now we're going to have this conversation. Some of the conversations were done in Spanish, which was, you know, super helpful. And part of the process also illuminated that vulnerability in saying, these are our vulnerabilities. These are the traumas our communities face. These are the vulnerabilities that we're trying to attend to. These are the ways in which we address it. We don't talk about it because it doesn't get funded necessarily. Often it is the continued invisible work of women. Some huge percentage of our groups are led by women of color. And organizers have to do that triple, quadruple level of work of the political work and the healing work. And so they're saying, okay, now we're putting it all out there. Y'all let the funders know that we are, we're being vulnerable in sharing this. And the big aha was also like, okay, the funding, if the funding is there or the funding isn't there, we're still doing this because this is our work. But if the funding is there, the level to which we can be one out about it and then have the resources to free us up to do more, it just has the ability to really propel the work forward. I call 2017, 2018, the year in which people were like, put your oxygen mask on first. So we have really interesting different models popping up where before you would poo-poo things like mental health services, then you have groups like Chirla in Los Angeles saying, we are going to create radically new and different mental health services as part of our model because our base, we're losing them if we don't. And we were hearing about the experience of young people in indigenous communities that we might have dubbed leadership development before, and then their healing and resilience models were just kind of out the water. Like they were just so incredible and vibrant. And we were like, where's the funding for this? How do we get more resources to this? And then I want to kind of kick it to you, Ellie, because we were so moved by what United We Dream was doing. 
Thank you so much for opening the space. Uh, and yeah, I will come back a little bit more in the context, right? Uh, before Trump gets elected, I think that's the pivot moment for our whole organizing model and the incorporation of healing, right? Uh, before that, I, I'm gonna present myself. My name is Eli Kuna. And at the moment, the National Field Director for United We Dream. I'm the founder of New Mexico Dream Team, an affiliate of United We Dream, and also who uh, the group of folks who develop Undoku healing programming in the Southwest and really grounded in New Mexico with our indigenous brothers and sisters with Lakota and Navajo traditions, that when then we move it up uh, to become a model to be adopted nationally through United We Dream. Uh, so that's the context uh, where I'm from, coming from 100% uh, Southwest organizer, uh, green and red chili, of course, uh, but 100% at the same time, uh, queer immigrant woman of color that is from the north of Mexico. And I'm telling these details because the healing model is about belonging, identity, who you are outside your struggle and fight. That has been what we have been incorporating in our organizing model. So the Undoku Healing Retreat start seven years ago because there was a crisis in New Mexico with immigrant young people arriving from the civil wars and also the narco war in Mexico and Central America. So we were having a different kind of crisis. It was not the Trump crisis, but a crisis of folks, young people arriving to our spaces with heavy living experiences of violence and abuse, right? and the urgency of survive. So we create our first space of Undoku healing, where we rooted to indigenous traditions to detox our soul, our mind, and our body, using temascales, using Lakota sweats, using at the same time a, a lot of the tobacco uh, traditions to heal, right? The youth wanted a space where they can discover who they are beyond of their experience that they just live. So that's the beginning of the Undoku Healing Program in New Mexico, and it start building up momentum across the whole state. When I get to UWD and I start acting in my role as a national field director, I have to canvas and lead an organizing effort to end 287G, which we won. We won ending 287G, but Trump get elected. And 287G is a way uh, the collaboration of ICE and local police. So we won ending that contract, but Trump gets elected. And I still remember all the organizers were crying. They were feeling alone afraid. It was like the worst moment that you can face, right, as a young person of color, an undocumented young person of color, as a queer undocumented person of color. And that's the moment when we, as a senior, like a leadership, in the leadership position, we decide like at this, uh, we need to pivot and change all our programming and our organizing model to really embed it. The question that is who we are outside a struggle and fight. Who we are in our legacy, who we are in our ancestry, right? And we change the practices. How that looks like in the organizing model, we open and close the space. We open with a prayer, we close with a prayer. We open with an altar, we close with an altar. We sweat as a leaders uh, before every single uh, big event and also when we need to strategize. Uh, we change the way how we eat. We do silence retreat. We cook from the land, so we create a land relationship of what we eat. We meditate. 
So those were the different practices that we start incorporating, right? And then we create an intentional space every year to have our healing, undoku healing retreats, and create really a curriculum. A curriculum that is more about is uh, going to a collective healing. It is okay to do our work internally and individually, but at the end of the day, we grow and heal together. And that's the truth. We are an ecosystem that depends from each other. And at the end of the day, we cannot organize always in crisis and in fear. That is not sustainable. That's how burnout happens. And that is a condition that is put in the government, in philanthropy, in the organizational expectations and institutional relationships. That is part of the capitalism problem, right? But a way to transform even that is when we start organizing through hope, joyful, rebellious, and saying like, you know what, uh, I'm more than just an immigrant, right? I'm more than just my papers. And, and we can connect not just in the struggle, we can connect also in our blessings and in our stories, in our culture and in our food. And that has been the change in the organizing model that has been impactful, that it takes time, it takes resources, and you give the advocacy and self-determination and sovereignty to the young leader to say, no, I won't do that. And that is something that is, uh, it, it is, is liberational as well, right? And I think that's the shift that you can see and feel in the movement and movement building at this moment. You are one of the people who is helping to define and redefine and rediscover what it means for us to be fully and truly in our power, to remember that we are the dreams of our, of our ancestors and, and future ancestors ourselves. And as you talk about what happens when we shift from defining ourselves by the ways that we've been harmed and defining ourselves by the ways that we've been traumatized by asking the question, but who are we really? And reconnecting to our traditions and our roots and, and this sense of, of who we are in our, in our joy and in our resilience so that it can become possible to generate and experience resilience and joy in the most difficult and most challenging of circumstances, which is of all the superpowers that I am aware of, that is the one that I am most inspired by. So I, I'm 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 uh, in serious awe <laughs> with what with what you've generated. And I can share some examples that I've seen on the funders end um, that I think Taj, you were getting at earlier when you were talking about Sapria Luna's leadership. That in the circles, one of the things that I've noticed in the funder circles that I'm part of having these conversations about funding healing justice and um, healing practices, and it is largely women of color and gender nonconforming folks, and. I think it's interesting what we've talked about in these meetings have been this reckoning that's happening in philanthropy while there's also like this shift happening in the world and in the organizing space where there you have Edgar Villanueva's book, you have, um, there's another book, I can't remember the name, The Winner Takes All. Um, so you have all of these literatures and criticisms out there on philanthropy, while at the same time, I'm pretty sure if you took a snapshot at the leadership in philanthropy now and compared it to 10 years ago, you have more women of color in leadership positions within institutions. And so I, I don't think that it is a coincidence that as this shift is happening, we are pushing for more authentic relationships. We're having conversations about white supremacy and how those practices and dynamics show up in the relationships that we have in the field. 
And I had a funder saying like, well, if we're supporting, if we're providing general operating support, like what does this healing justice um, support look like? Is it an add-on? Like I'm struggling with how do I make the case internally, right? How does it make sense? And I think for funders, especially I'm a young woman of color in philanthropy, for someone in a senior leadership position to be that vulnerable and say, here are the um, challenges I'm facing. Like how can we think about this outside of the box, I think speaks to the opportunity that we're seeing for this work and having funders talk about like, okay, we can't just, this can't just be the hot topic, right? For um, our 2019 or 2018 portfolio. How can we really like learn what we need to learn so that it changes the way that we do things on a like fundamental level? I want to add something to that, Clarabelle. I think, yes, we have more people of color in leadership in philanthropy, but we certainly don't have enough. And we have a long (laughs) way to go. Mm -hmm. I think there's some statistic I was just read yesterday that we are something like only nine and a half percent. This cannot be a dialogue that's just about like, let's go out. And and I know you know this because we work on this together. So I know you're like on the same team and we're in the same choir on this. We cannot just be saying we're going out there and funding this. Oh, and here's yet another thing outside of us. We are not outside of that. We are in it. And we as people of color in this work coming from the same communities, we know that. Sometimes we feel like we're these stealth people in in philanthropy. Sometimes we can be out. But the interdependence part is actually what's missing. Like listening to Ellie speak, how are we turning that lens back on us in our institutions? How is it shifting, one, our vision of what's possible for us as essentially financial institutions? Two, how is it creating really deep partnership where we are risking as much as the field is risking. They just said, hey, we're putting all our traumas out to bear for y'all. You're going to fund this. Well, what are we doing about that and looking internally? And we are in an institution. Philanthropy is no different than any other institution in this country mired in systemic racism and white supremacy. And to undo that, we even as people of color within these institutions have to put the lenses on to see that and say, what are we perpetuating? So I think we have so much to learn from the field right now. And I think what's profound about how you're shifting the dynamic and the practice is by modeling and embodying a different set of values and approaches that both of you and the other leaders I really look to in philanthropy for leadership are people who understand that the way that we do our work has to reflect the visions for what we want to create and that institutions of power are not excluded from that. Philanthropy is not excluded from that. And there's no real possibility of achieving transformational change unless some of these institutions begin to follow your lead and follow the practice pathway that you're laying out and see how much better it is when we really try to live our values with with integrity. Because, you know, imagining who we are and understanding who we are beyond white supremacy, beyond misogyny, beyond patriarchy is about, you know, overcoming that that big lie of separation and supremacy, that we're separate from nature, that we're separate from each other, and that some things are above other things. And that's really that misunderstanding is at the root of so much of the, the suffering that we're, we're surrounded by. And so to have leaders in philanthropy build philanthropic practice and build relationships that's really rooted in a recognition of our interdependence and rooted in our mutuality and challenges really directly and, and explicitly that lie of separation and supremacy is really the way that a small group of people can have an outsized impact on the practices of a whole system. Because, you know, the squad doesn't have to be big to change how everybody is doing everything. And that's happening everywhere I look and every part of society. How I knew I was not a youth organizer anymore was being in conversation with some leaders in the movement for black lives and they were laying out their whole strategy and approach for what they were trying to do and none of it made any sense to me and i didn't think it was going to work and i was absolutely and completely wrong everything they did worked exactly how they said it would and from then on i said okay now i've transitioned (laughs) i need to do less talking and more listening 
um, because there's a whole generation of young leaders who understand this world in a way that I don't because they're born into a different moment and they're living far into a future that I won't inhabit. And so my responsibility shifted even more profoundly to ask the question, what do you see and what do you need? And that's what I spend most of my time doing these days. And I'm astounded all the time by young people who consistently do things that looked impossible to me because of their courage, their creativity, and their understanding that things have to change and they are changing. So Clarabelle and Supriya, any concluding thoughts or short stories you want to share as we close out? I really just wanted to say thank you. This has been a great opportunity and I'm just super grateful to the partnership with Clarabelle, which has been new, the deepened partnership in MSC and with Carlos and Hinato on the project. And Kate, your work is incredible. And I really hope that this gets wings and people out there hear it and it resonates and and continues to grow. I just wanted to say thank you for the conversation, for the stories. I feel like every time I'm with this team, especially when I'm listening to Ellie or any of our other um, partners, I'm always constantly learning. So it's it, that's a privilege and it's in itself. So thank you. We're grateful to be in partnership with the Healing Justice Podcast family and to be able to be in community with all of you and tune in next time for the next conversation. Thank you so much to Ellie from United We Dream and the New Mexico Dream Team, and Taj, Supriya, and Gladibel from the Next Gen Fund and Movement Strategy Center and Ford Foundation. If you want to get in touch with NextGen because these ideas are just super exciting or you have an idea to get connected or you want to share feedback or express your appreciation, you can email them directly at nextgen at movementstrategy.org. That's N-E-X-T-G-E-N at movementstrategy.org. You can find everything you need to know about this whole series called Generation Transformation at healingjustice.org generation. You'll find a transcript of this episode there, a list of all the episodes coming up, and they include hearing from the Chinese Progressive Association next week, talking about intergenerational organizing and bridging across generations and cultural divides. And a couple weeks after that, we talk with Freedom Inc. about the ways in which they are building multiracial and intergenerational organization in Madison, Wisconsin. You can get in touch with us at healingjustice.org. Check out the transcripts there, social media, our Patreon at patreon.com slash healingjustice and find us there. We love to hear from you. We love to see on social media when you tag us how these conversations have impacted you, how you're using them in the world. So let us know, be in dialogue with us. A big thank you to our producer, Jale Akavan, and our sound engineer, Zach Meyer, for their hard work on this episode. And all of our guests who recorded this episode remotely in New York, the Bay, and New Mexico, uh, thank you for learning the technology with us and doing an amazing job creating this grassroots podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. We can't wait to dive deeper with you into transformational youth and intergenerational organizing. And we'll do just that next week. Hear you soon.